We're back at it here on Peter's Proffer in the courtroom of current events with a very special episode interviewing Larry Simpson, who was the prosecutor who tried and convicted Ted Bundy here in Florida all those years ago. Uh, He was recently portrayed by Jim Parsons, um, the guy from Big Bang Theory in uh, Netflix's newest movie with Zac Efron uh, acting as Ted Bundy. So that's a fun fact. And we're going to get into the specifics of the trial, the specifics of the case, the craziness that surrounded it. It's going to be a really fun episode. So I know you guys are going to enjoy this one. Um, Don't forget, this is the third part of our Serial Killer uh, podcast series. Uh, We only have one more week of uh, entries to win the Amazon gift card of $25 and the Trago Sardis and Trago's t-shirt. So like us on all social media and post a question or tag some friends on our Peter's Proffer page. And uh, we will do a drawing at the end of the month to figure out who's going to win that. So buckle your seatbelts because this one's going to be fun. Here we go. Okay. Larry, uh, I'm glad you're with us. Uh, I think people already know that you were the lead prosecutor on the Ted Bundy case. Uh, They probably don't know you and I went to law school together, uh, but that's not quite as important. Uh, We have some questions we like to throw at you. Uh, We've uh, put you on Facebook. We've got some people that have responded on Facebook to some questions and uh, information they'd like to know. We even got a response from a lawyer that you had a case with who responded to us that we know and said, gee, I didn't know Larry was the Ted Bundy prosecutor. I would have talked to him about that. <laughs> but what was, what was his name? Brandon Ballou. Brandon so, Ballou, right. Yeah, so we, uh, so we are really excited about it. We've been doing a series on serial killers, some of the documentaries we've had. Uh, uh, an FBI agent that was a special investigator that handled uh, some serial killer cases. And then we also had um, an investigative reporter that did it for about 40 years following different serial killers throughout uh, the media portion of these cases and investigations. So we're really excited to have somebody that was in a serial killer case everybody knows about. So um, to start out talking about it, how did you get picked to try the Ted Bundy case and to kind of go through it? Because you were a fairly young prosecutor at the time, weren't you? Yes, I was. Uh, I was only 29. I'd been out of uh, law school just a little over four years, uh, but the whole time I uh, was out of law school, uh, I had been an assistant state attorney. I'd handled major cases, uh, homicides, and things like that uh, before this. But what actually happened is that uh, Mr. Bundy was arrested in Pensacola, Florida, uh, and at the time of his arrest, he was driving a stolen vehicle that had been stolen here in Tallahassee. He also had a lot of um, stolen property, uh, stolen credit cards, stolen identifications, all that had come from uh, Tallahassee. And initially, I was assigned to handle those cases. In other words, I was going to handle all of the um, theft cases, uh, credit card fraud cases, and so forth. And there was a different assistant state attorney who was assigned to handle the homicide investigation, realized at that point in time uh, we did not know whether or not Mr. Bundy was even a suspect in our case. Nobody even knew he, he was in Tallahassee at the time of the uh, murders. Uh, and quite frankly, if, uh, if whenever Mr. Bundy decided that he was going to leave Tallahassee, if he had jumped on a Greyhound bus and uh, left like that, uh, we, with no ties back to Tallahassee, we probably never would have solved these murders. Wow. 
but at any rate, um, what happened is after uh, a month or so uh, of that process uh, going forward with the investigation of the homicide while I was handling the other cases, the uh, prosecutor that was assigned to the homicide investigation resigned from our office. And at that point, uh, the uh, state attorney came to me and asked me if I would take over the cases, uh, all of them, uh, including the homicide case, and I agreed to do so. Why do you think the state attorney didn't want to jump on them? Well, you would have to ask the state attorney, uh, <laughs> because that decision was not, I, I was not party to that decision. Okay. Larry, was that Willie Meggs? No, that was... Uh, Harry Morrison was the state attorney at the time. What, was he trying cases as, as a state attorney? Uh, no, not at that point in time. He wasn't. He, of course, had tried tons of cases earlier on. He, he was originally an assistant state attorney before he, late, late, in, uh, late in life, he uh, decided to run for state attorney and was elected. Uh, but he did not typically uh, try cases. He did uh, second chair a murder case with me. Uh, that I had tried, uh, I guess, about six months or so before all of this came down. So what actually ended up connecting Ted Bundy to the murders in Tallahassee if he was picked up in Pensacola on kind of stolen property charges? Well, we were able to hold him uh, on the stolen property charges. And once I was uh, assigned to the homicide investigation, uh, what I did is I put together a task force of uh, local law enforcement officers. I, I got uh, two uh, investigators from the sheriff's office, two investigators from the Tallahassee Police Department, and two investigators from the FSU Police Department who were assigned directly to me. Uh, and for about six weeks, we went about uh, trying to determine whether or not Mr. Bundy uh, could have committed the murders, investigated where he was living at the time, talked to uh, witnesses uh, that may have been in the area, uh, and one of the things that we did <clears throat> back in those days, this was uh, very unusual, and that is uh, during the autopsy, uh, the uh, pathologist uh, saw what he uh, uh, understood to be a bite mark on one of the uh, victims. And uh, he was not a forensic pathologist. He, he knew it had some significance. He, wasn't sure exactly what to do with it, uh, so there was no swabbings that was taken uh, from the bite mark, uh, and he decided he, that we needed to preserve the bite mark, and so he actually cut it out and put it in a bottle of formaldehyde, wow. which at that point it began shrinking, and it was totally worthless for purposes of uh, uh, using it for comparison purposes later. Um, what we did have, though, is out of the thousands of crime scene photographs and autopsy photographs uh, that were taken in, the, in this case, there was one photograph of that bite mark that was taken with a ruler in place. Because there was a ruler in place, uh, we were able to take that photograph and blow it up to a one-to-one. -one. And if we had a model of Mr. Bunty's teeth, then we could go about uh, making some sort of a comparison to determine whether or not Bundy could have left the, the bite mark on the victim. And so what we did is we went to a judge and applied for and had the judge issue a search warrant to search Mr. Bundy's mouth and obtain uh, plaster casts of 
his teeth that we could then later uh, use for comparison purposes. And that search warrant was executed on Bundy. Uh, here in Tallahassee, he was taken to a uh, local dentist's office. We had a forensic odontologist who specializes in things like bite marks uh, come to Tallahassee and actually take uh, the uh, uh, moldings from Mr. Uh, Bundy's teeth uh, so that they could later be used for comparison purposes. Larry, did he cooperate in giving you that cast or did he fight it? Well, he, he may have been going to fight it, uh, but uh, our forensic odontologist, Dr. Suveron, uh, explained to Mr. Bundy that he had a tool that would make his mouth open and showed it to him, and Mr. Bundy decided at that point that he would cooperate. Yeah, it wasn't worth the fight at that point. So how early in the investigative process did the media get involved? When did they get wind that you may have had a suspect that you picked up on some random charges, basically, that may be part of this big homicide? Well, what happened is uh, when Mr. Bundy was arrested in Pensacola, he gave a uh, an alias, and he said that uh, his name was Ken Meisner. And so the next day in the Tallahassee Democrat, there was a huge headline in the paper that said uh, FSU All-American track star Ken Meisner arrested in Pensacola. Wow. Uh, and, of course, Ken Meisner, who was here at the time, he called the Democrat and the Sheriff's Department and explained that, no, he had not been arrested in Pensacola. And it was three days uh, before... Uh, we were able to determine that it was, in fact, Mr. Bundy that was under arrest in Pensacola. Once, once we knew who it was and began investigating his background, it was very obvious that he had to be a suspect in the uh, murders that happened here, especially with the uh, stolen car and stolen credit cards and so forth that tied him directly to this area. So what was the media frenzy like at that point? Well... It, it wasn't that great initially because really nobody knew who he was. Uh, and it, but, but once it was determined who he was, uh, then of course the media got involved in the situation. Uh, and from that point forward, in any and every uh, court proceeding, there was a ton of media presence. And, and one of those, at least that's portrayed in most of the documentaries or movies or things that I've seen on it, has a, sometimes it looks like the courthouse, but you told me it was actually at the jail where the indictment was read aloud to Ted Bundy with all the media around um, and, and seemed like a big publicity stunt kind of thing by the sheriff. Did that kind of get it rolling even more than it was before? Well, certainly. Once, once we had the indictment, uh, then everything really uh, uh, escalated from there uh, because that's whenever we... Uh, you know, started having a lot of court proceedings and various things going on uh, in the case. Uh, up until that point, of course, our investigation was uh, confidential, and so we weren't holding press conferences or doing anything else like that that would draw attention to the case. How much time elapsed from the murders until the indictment? Uh, it was, uh, I want to say, roughly uh, four to four and a half months. Uh, it took a while. I mean, you've got to realize that uh, the murders occurred on uh, the morning of January the 15th of 1978. A, a date you'll never forget. Uh, really. And Buddy was 
wasn't arrested until February the 15th of 1978. Uh, and so... At that point in time, like I said before, nobody knew for sure whether Bundy was a suspect or not. And there had been a lot of investigation done uh, in the meantime. I mean, if, whenever you have a, um, a series of murders that happen like this, uh, with a whodunit, nobody knows who, who possibly could have committed these horrendous crimes. Uh, the law enforcement was up in arms. I mean, they were stopping everybody on the street uh, everybody was, uh, you know, locking their doors and closing their windows, the whole nine yards. So there was a lot of investigation that had been done before Bunny was ever arrested. And part of my responsibility, as I saw it, was to go back now and let's find out what, if anything, that prior investigation may have done to help point the finger either at Bundy or away from him. And at the same time, follow up on all the leads uh, on various types of evidence uh, that may tie Bundy to the case. For example, one of the things that I did once the case was assigned to me is I traveled to Seattle, Washington, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and also to Colorado to uh, talk with uh, the investigators in the various cases out in those areas to try to get as much information as I could from them to see whether or not any of the evidence that they may have had in their cases may have been of use to us. Because at that point, he had already had cases going on, and he was either a suspect or he was a defendant in cases in those other states. That's right. He, he had actually been convicted in Utah of uh, aggravated kidnapping, and he was sentenced to an indeterminate term of between one year and 15 years in the Utah State Prison. While he was in the Utah State Prison, he was extradited to Colorado to uh, uh, stand charges of uh, murder, uh, resulting from the death of a uh, young nurse uh, in Aspen, Colorado. And it was while he was awaiting trial in Colorado that he escaped not once, but twice uh, from the authorities out there. It's crazy. It's so crazy. So... How did the media attention and the sheriff reading the indictment in front of the media and all that stuff, how did it affect the trial and the location of the trial? Well, uh, it, it really impacted our ability uh, to uh, seat a fair and impartial jury here in Tallahassee. Uh, we attempted to do so, by the way. Uh, we spent three days uh, trying to uh, see if we could find an impartial jury here in Tallahassee, and after three days of... Uh, what was that like? What were the what were the potential jurors saying? Almost all of them uh, said that they could not be fair and impartial. Meaning they just thought he did almost it? All, almost all of them uh, knew the, the details of the crimes, the details of Mr. Bundy's history, had seen uh, the, uh, a, a video of the sheriff uh, arresting Bundy in front of the cameras. And it was very obvious to everybody involved uh, that the venue of the case had to be transferred to another location. Before you even started picking that jury, didn't they try to move it and the judge denied it? And then the judge had to, and the state, I guess, you all had to finally agree that you're right, we can't get a fair jury? Well, actually, the way it works is uh, the, the defense did file a motion for a change of venue prior to jury selection. Uh, but the judge took that motion under advisement 
and said that um, we would attempt to select a jury. And like I said, we spent about three days trying to do that, and it was it was very obvious to everybody that uh, a, an impartial jury could not be found in Tallahassee. And at that point, the judge granted uh, the motion for a change of venue and moved the venue to Miami, Florida. Was there any was there any worry in your mind that Miami was a not a good venue for you? It's about the opposite as you can get in in Florida, Tallahassee to Miami. Or did you feel pretty confident in your case the whole time? confident in my case the whole time, but of course that's uh, a, a jurisdiction that I'm totally unfamiliar with, uh, at least at that point in my career, and we would have much rather uh, tried the case uh, here in Tallahassee or somewhere in the North Florida area, but uh, that decision was not left up to me. Uh, the judge made that decision, and here we went to Miami. Now, the Tallahassee judge was recused from it, right? Yes, the original uh, judge in the case was... Uh, Circuit Judge John Rudd, and uh, Bundy moved to disqualify him, and uh, ultimately the uh, Florida Supreme Court. What was the reasoning? It did disqualify uh, Judge Rudd. It, it was a uh, what I call kind of a typical disqualification motion that the judge was prejudiced uh, against him. That said things in court mm. uh, that were uh, things that were unfavorable to him and stuff like that. It, it was pretty. Uh, standard. If somebody wanted to get rid of a judge, it was that type of a, uh, a motion. The, the problem uh, was that Judge Rudd, I think he took it personally, and uh, he wrote a very lengthy order denying the motion, which I'm sure, as you know, under Florida law, uh, a judge who's confronted with a disqualification motion only has the option of finding that the motion is legally sufficient or legally insufficient. Right. The judge cannot uh, comment on the allegations. Well, once the judge, Judge Rudd, commented on the allegations, it was a foregone conclusion. I felt that uh, <clears throat> he would be uh, removed from the case by the Florida Supreme Court. Did, did you have any uh, experience with Judge Cowart before going down to Miami and trying it in front of him? Uh, the only experience I had with Judge Cowart was here in Tallahassee because he originally came to Tallahassee uh, for the court proceedings ah. prior to the venue being changed. So all the pretrial proceedings were handled in Tallahassee before the actual trial was done in Miami? Uh, I, let's say most of the uh, pretrial proceedings were done here in Tallahassee because once we got to Miami, um, the first thing we did was select the jury and have them sequestered. Uh, but after that, we then had additional pretrial hearings uh, there in uh, Miami before the trial actually started. So for people that don't know, what does it mean to have a jury rec- uh, sequestered? That means the uh, jury uh, was uh, put up in a motel. Uh, they were not allowed to uh, return home at night. They were uh, fed and uh, supervised 24 hours a day by uh, members of the Sheriff's Department. Were they limited in the media they could consume and people they could talk to, things like that? Absolutely. Uh, they were not given access to uh, newspaper reports about the case or uh, television or anything else like that where they may be able to get uh, information concerning the case from some outside source, uh, not within the courthouse. Larry, this was one of the first trials that was televised. How did uh, that come about? Did the media file a motion? Was it on? Did the judge do it himself? How did that happen? Uh, well, 
at, at that point in time, uh, there was a proceeding in place that uh, basically permitted uh, cameras in the courtroom, and there were uh, orders that had been entered uh, that indicated, uh, you know, where a camera could be situated and, and things like that. Uh, there was, uh, out of those orders, uh, the media was permitted to have a, uh, a one uh, camera that was running live, and they were allowed to have one still photographer. What the media had to do then was to pool uh, and feed off of that, that one uh, live camera as well as the uh, photographer that was uh, allowed to be in the uh, courtroom taking pictures. Was this your first televised trial, the one first that you had done? Uh, I, I think so, because this was like one of the first ones ever. So how do you think it affected the court proceedings, the fact that it was televised, everybody in the courtroom, including yourself, knew it was televised and knew that? Did you realize how many people were watching it? I, I had some idea, but I didn't. Uh, I, I, I really had no idea the magnitude of it. So what, how do you think it affected the court proceedings, if at all? Do you think you know you prepared your opening and closing any differently, more you know poster boards and pictures and physical evidence you had pictures of CSI style? Do you think the judge acted any different, the defense lawyers? Frankly, I don't think anybody acted any differently. I know from my perspective, uh, you know, I couldn't, I didn't have time to worry about what the media was doing. Uh, I was focused on one thing, and that was trying to get uh, this case tried and uh, Bundy convicted. Uh, and you know, the, the cameras were there, so what? Uh, they had been at every pretrial hearing uh, that we'd ever been to, uh, and, you know, we just had to proceed on. Uh, it, the only real criticism that I have ever had of uh, cameras in the courtroom, uh, a good example of this was, did happen in the Bundy case, and that was during one of the pretrial hearings. One of the witnesses, uh, Nita Neary, who was, uh, at the Kyle Mega sorority house uh, the night of the murders and saw a man that she later identified as Bundy coming uh, down the stairway uh, from the upstairs where the girls' rooms were. Uh, she was on the witness stand uh, for probably seven hours uh, that day, and she was a great witness. Uh, but at one point in time, she broke down and started to cry uh, after, you know, about four hours of you know, just horrendous cross-examination of her. And uh, that night on the 6 o'clock news, of course, the only thing that uh, you saw on the uh, newscast was her breaking down and crying. Uh, I thought it was unfair to her and, and really unfair to the process, but that's neither here nor there. That's the way uh, the media sometimes tries to, uh, to use uh, what they see and, and, and hear in a courtroom. So what about Bundy himself? How much of the case did he actually handle himself pro se, defending himself? How much of it was actually handled by his lawyers? How much did he put on for the camera? What was he like throughout the proceedings? Uh, well, Bundy represented himself for several months. I can't tell you how many for sure, but I know there was a four-month period of time there uh, where um, under under Florida law, uh, in a case like this, the defense has the right to take depositions from state witnesses. And I spent about four months going to the uh, Leon County Jail every day, taking witnesses out there uh, so that Bundy could take their depositions. What was that like? 
perfect gentleman. Uh, I mean, he asked really good questions. Uh, he was, uh, you know, polite, uh, you know, direct to the point, asked questions that you would expect a lawyer uh, to ask. Uh, there was never a, any uh, issue that came up during any of those uh, depositions. Of course, we, we did the depositions in the jail in a, um, uh, a conference room, and of course we had correctional officers on standby in the room with us uh, while he was doing uh, the deposition, so I don't think anyone ever had any fear uh, of Mr. Bundy under those circumstances. But nevertheless, I mean, uh, some of the witnesses that uh, came in to testify were kind of mega sisters or others that uh, were, you know, witnesses in the case who had seen Bundy on the night uh, of the murders and things like that. And obviously they were very concerned. Uh, but fortunately, everybody got to it okay. Uh, we didn't have any problems doing that. What about in the trial itself? What, what did Bundy actually do in the trial, if anything? Uh, well, during the trial, he was represented by lawyers. Uh, and I think it was either the second or third witness that I called to testify for the state. Uh, his name was uh, Officer Ray Crew. He was with the FSU Police Department. And uh, I called him because he was the... Um, one of the first officers on the scene, and he is the one that discovered the bodies of the two Calmega sisters who had been killed. And um, I, on direct examination, I had him on the witness stand for maybe 15 minutes at the most. I just wanted him to set the scene and say he found the body because I had crime scene investigators who had photographs and all kinds of other stuff that they were going to uh, put into evidence. Uh, I, I still had them coming to testify, uh, and for some reason, out of the clear blue sky, Mr. Bundy decided that he wanted to cross-examine Officer Crew, and he got up there, and he, he asked Officer Crew to describe the scene in those girls' rooms with as much detail as you can recall. Now, I can't imagine anybody asking that question. Uh, I can't imagine a defense attorney asking that question. It, it, it's probably the worst question that's ever been asked in the history of the United States uh, of a witness in a criminal case. The last thing in the world you want to do is to ask a witness like this, a law enforcement officer, to describe what they saw in as much detail as possible. I think the jury was really taken aback by that. Uh, I, I was just in awe. I, I couldn't believe that he had asked that question. And uh, so Officer Crew began answering the question, at which point uh, one of the lawyers got up and went over to Mr. Bundy, uh, called him over to one side, and uh, Mr. Bundy said thank you and sat down and quit asking questions. How many lawyers did Bundy go through during the course of the case? Um Gosh, it was probably somewhere in excess of seven or eight. Uh, there were a lot of lawyers that were involved in the case from time to time. And uh, by my count, there were seven uh, that were in the courtroom uh, in Miami at one point in time. Did he? Of course, Bundy was not uh, you know, shy about firing lawyers either. 
And uh, during the middle of the trial, one of the lawyers apparently made Bundy mad or something. I don't know. And he told him to get lost, and the lawyer withdrew from the case right during the middle of the trial. Yeah, that's in the that's in the documentary. One of the documentaries that I saw. How long did the trial last? The uh, well, let's see. I was in uh, Miami for a little over uh, six weeks, and uh, I would say the, the guilt phase probably lasted somewhere. A little over four weeks, and uh, the uh, penalty phase, I think, was three days. Okay, so a lot of your evidence was scientific evidence. And one of the ones that I found interesting were the, the teeth marks or the bite marks. Now, as time has gone on, that kind of evidence has been called into question. Do you think that there was a... I guess an overemphasis by your expert of the the bite marks, or do you think that he was accurate when he said it was definitely Bundy? Well, let me start by saying that I think a lot of the criticism uh, that bite mark evidence has received more recently is totally justified. I think there were, at at one point in time, there were a lot of experts that claimed uh, expertise that really weren't experts and didn't really know what they were doing. But I think the difference here in our particular case is we had a very unique bite mark and Bundy had a very unique set of teeth. What was unique about the bite mark is that it was not just a bite mark. It is It was a double bite mark. In other words, this was a situation where Bundy bit the victim once, released, and went back and bit a second time almost in the exact same location. Uh, He he just turned his head slightly in making that second bite. So that what we had here was not one bite mark to make a comparison with, but we had two. So that the bite marks themselves could be compared against each other, and each of those bite marks could be compared against Bundy's teeth. Um, And as I said, Mr. Bundy had a very unique set of teeth. His uh, lower jaw uh, was... Uh, the set of teeth that was actually used for the comparison here. Uh, and he, his teeth were, uh, to start with, the width of the arch of his teeth was very narrow for uh, an adult human. Uh, the teeth themselves, some of the teeth were twisted. Some were higher in the arch, some were lower in the arch. Uh, the canine teeth had very uh, unique uh individual characteristics to them, all of which uh, you could see uh, in the bite mark itself. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we were able to to, uh, take the bite mark photograph that we had and make it a one-to-one. And what you could actually do is to take the model of Mr. Bunny's teeth and just put it right down on the bite marks uh, that were shown on that photograph and see it for yourself. Now, having said all of that, I never believed uh, that the bite mark evidence alone was sufficient to get a conviction in this case. To the contrary, uh, this is, this was a circumstantial evidence case in my mind that we always had to put together the other circumstances of the case in order to prove that Bundy is the one that did it. For example, um, we were able uh, to find witnesses uh, who were in uh, a nightclub that was right next door to the Kyle Mega House 
who identified Bundy as being in that nightclub just hours before uh, the murders occurred. So that we were able to put Bundy uh, in the vicinity, I mean, like right next door to the crime scene, uh, just a couple of hours before uh, the murders happened. We were also able to find uh, two young men who were uh, who, who lived in the same boarding house with Mr. Bundy, who happened to be up at uh, somewhere around 4.30 to 4.45 a.m. that morning when they saw Bundy come home. So they, were, uh, they, they already knew Mr. Bundy, although they knew him under a different name, uh, and saw him coming in. So we had him on the streets, uh, you know, next door to the Kyle Mega house before uh, the crimes had committed, and then we had him just an hour or so later uh, coming back to his residence. I, you know, I've always felt that that type of circumstantial evidence is very, very strong in a case like this. In looking at and reading the comments of the judge, one of the things I found interesting was it seemed like he had some respect for Bundy. It just seemed like he either respected his intelligence or respected his abilities, but he there seemed to be something there between the judge and Bundy. Is that the way it came out during the trial? Well, I think the judge did respect him, uh, and frankly, so did I. You know, one of the things that I felt like I had to do in, the, in this case was I had to treat this case very professionally. It, it could have easily have degenerated, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I could have tried to do everything in my power to prejudice the jury against him to do stuff like that, but uh, that never happened, and I think that was kind of the judge's attitude as well, is that we had to approach this from a very professional uh, attitude and show total and complete respect for Mr. Bundy. And I think some of that probably stemmed from what had already happened in the case and the procedural history with the previous judge and the sheriff's office reading the indictment aloud and things like that that, you know, you guys probably see it's this is not the type of case you needed to do that on. You just present your case the proper way, and justice will prevail. Hopefully, I think that's exactly right. That's the way I felt about it. So when you were when you were actually in the trial, um, most most everything I see and hear and read about it says that the gallery was kind of crazy compared to a normal trial. It was full. It was loud at times. What was that like? Uh, you know, I, I I really don't have uh, any thoughts about the gallery. Yeah, there were a lot of people there, uh, and it was packed full, but I don't have any recollection of there being any outbursts or anything else like that that was improper that happened in the uh, gallery itself. Larry, I I read that there were groupies there for Bundy. Did you see any groupies? Um, I did not. There may have been. uh, But again, as I said earlier, I, I was more focused on what I had to do that I was worried about the media or the uh, people that were sitting there watching the trial. Was there ever, I guess before we get to that, I'll ask you this question because a bunch of people asked us to ask you, um, even though I know it wasn't during this trial, was it true that Ted actually proposed while his girlfriend was on the stand during trial? That's my understanding. Um, I was not present for that. That was during the Kimberly Bleach case. But um, I understand he did. whether or not they ever signed a marriage license, I don't know. <laughs> and and so when you were going throughout this trial and, and you felt confident in your case the entire time, was there ever a time that a, a plea deal was offered or considered by Bundy um, to where it would be something less than the death penalty? Yes. Uh, 
there, there came a point in time where um, we did get into discussions with uh, Mr. Bundy's uh, attorney, Mike Minerva, who was the public defender here in Tallahassee. Um, and what we uh, ultimately came, uh, what it ultimately came down to is that uh, Bundy, according to his lawyer, uh, would agree to plead guilty to all of the charges, uh, which would include the two homicide cases in Tallahassee, as well as the uh, Kimberly Leach case. And he would be uh, sentenced to life without parole for 75 years on those three homicides. Um, when uh, we went before the, the uh, court to uh, uh, have Bundy enter that plea, uh, once we got everybody into the courtroom, the first thing that happened is Bundy stood up and started making a speech and criticizing his lawyers. Uh, and at that point in time, uh, me and the uh, prosecutor in the Kimberly Leach case uh, looked at each other and stood up and said, this is over with. Uh, no more deals. <laughs> no, we will not go through with a deal uh, under circumstances like this. So did you did anything come out during your trial about his relationship with this girl that he met while he was, you know, in prison and they get married and I think he even they even had a kid or did you experience any of that throughout your trial? No, no none of that uh, happened in my trial. So after the conviction came down and and Bundy was actually convicted of the the homicides in Tallahassee what was the post-conviction uh, timeline like? Were how heavily involved were you? Did anything get close to giving him a new trial or anything like that? Uh, I was not directly involved in the post-conviction case. Uh, I, I was consulted uh, by the attorney general's office, who uh, they were the ones that were assigned to handle the post-conviction motions, uh, and I went through uh, you know several uh, different things with them. They asked me to. I reviewed transcripts for them and stuff like that, but I was not directly involved. Uh, and, you know, I, I really don't think uh, any of those post-conviction motions really got off the ground very far. So in the trial and in the post-conviction world of the Ted Bundy case, what were his best arguments, in your opinion? What were his best arguments during trial, either that he wasn't there, that it was somebody else, or whatever his defense was? And was there anything in the trial that, you know, you thought held any water in the post-conviction world? Well, his defense, of course, was that he didn't do it. Um, and, yes, there were some issues that were involved, uh, one of which was the fact that uh, the Harris Department uh, had Nita Neary, who I mentioned earlier, they had her hypnotized, and uh, this became a big issue on the direct appeal. Uh, because they actually hypnotized her. Yes, uh, she had been hypnotized, and uh, you know she later identified Bundy uh, in court as the person that she saw. Hmm. And there was a big issue on appeal about this post-hypnotic uh, identification uh, that was being made. Fortunately, the uh, uh, the Florida Supreme Court uh, affirmed on that issue as well, although they were, uh, it was obvious that th it was a troubling issue for them as well. So what, what about during the trial? Anything else besides, you know, it wasn't me? Did he, I, how much of the collateral damage, we'll call, came out? How much of his previous cases or the 
stolen material he was picked up with in Pensacola that was all from Tallahassee, the false names he was using in Tallahassee. How much did that come into the actual murder trial? Uh, that did not come in, okay. uh, not during the uh, guilt phase. Um, we attempted uh, to get some of that evidence in, and in particular, uh, here in Tallahassee, we had not one crime scene, but two. Uh, the Kyle Omega house uh, is, is the one that everybody uh, usually references, but there was a second crime scene here uh, that we referred to as the Dunwoody residence. Uh, the Dunwoody residence was a duplex. And uh, one of the other victims in this case was Cheryl Thomas, who lived in one side of one of that duplex. And uh, within about 45 minutes of the Kyle Omega uh, murders happening and being called into law enforcement, um, the uh, next-door neighbors of Cheryl Thomas started hearing this loud noises coming from next door, beating and banging and uh, they tried to call Cheryl. They uh, tried to, you know, get her to respond in some way, and she wouldn't. And they ended up calling uh, law enforcement themselves. And when they arrived, they found uh, Cheryl Thomas uh, in a pool of blood on her bed. Uh, it would later be determined that she had uh, her um, skull had been uh, fractured five different places. Uh, she. Uh, was really in bad shape. But one of the things that was found in the Cheryl Thomas uh, residence was a pantyhose mask, a mask that was made out of uh, a pair of women's pantyhose with eye holes cut in them. Well, uh, I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, I had been out west uh, to talk with those investigators, and one of the things that I found out there uh, was that when Bundy was arrested in Utah, uh, he had a bag uh, with him that the uh, uh, original officers thought was uh, a bag full of burglary tools. It, it included things like uh, handcuffs, an ice pick, a hammer, and a pair of pantyhose, uh, pantyhose that was made into a mask. Hmm. And so one of the things uh, that I tried to introduce during our trial uh, was the pantyhose mask from Utah to show, you know, similarity, uh, you know, modus operandi, you know, that kind of stuff. And the judge would not permit us to uh, introduce it in evidence. Larry, one of the things you've, you've mentioned, you've talked about a penalty phase and guilt phase. I think uh, people need to know that in Florida, there's actually two parts of a murder trial. The part that finds a person guilty and not guilty, and then the part that whether or not they're going to be sentenced to death. And those are actually two separate phases and two separate trials that actually occur. That's correct. When you talk about the penalty phase, in this case, you say it took four weeks. No, three days for the penalty no, phase. Tell me the death, the uh, guilt, guilt phase. Guilt phase took four weeks. You and I have both tried a lot of murder cases. What's the typical length of a murder case? Well, you know, George, like I do, they vary. Um, you know, some of them, you know, I've tried murder cases in three days before. Uh, and a typical murder case around here uh, back in those days would probably be a week. But it's not anything unusual to try one for four months or six months or, or even longer. Depending on the complexity of the case. It really does. Right. Uh -huh. So throughout this case, when you were dealing with the victims, 
Um, how did that affect how you handled the case? How did it affect kind of the way you went about it, like you said, professionally and things like that? And how did it affect the way you handled the media? Well, uh, let, let me talk about handling the media. I, I just, you know, took the position that I wasn't going to comment on the case to the media and let them, uh, you know, whatever I said in court was fair game. They could, uh, you know, report on it uh, all they wanted to. Um, but the only thing that I would uh, ever give uh, in terms of a statement to the media uh, prior to the verdicts uh, in the case were just simply things like, uh, you know, date and time of hearings and what motions would be heard and, you know, stuff like that, just procedural stuff. I, uh, I would never say anything uh, that could be uh, misinterpreted or used to try to show uh, some sort of prejudice uh, against Mr. Bundy. Well, you, those all, all those things you just mentioned are also all public record. Uh, yes, surely. And then what about dealing with the victims? Well, uh, you know, I, 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 I obviously, uh, I spent a lot of time with the victims. Uh, you know, I cared about them. I met the, uh, the, the families of the uh, victims that were, that were murdered. Uh, and, and so, yes, I, I, I felt a lot toward those people. I know how they feel. I'm still in touch with, uh, you know, some of the victims that uh, that lived. Uh, I saw I saw Cheryl Thomas not too long ago, as a matter of fact. Uh, I saw uh, the, uh, the the woman that uh, one of the women that uh, lived next door to Cheryl and called the sheriff's department the other that night. Uh, I, I saw her just a month month or so ago. Had uh, she was having lunch uh, at the same restaurant that I was in. So I, I I see these people all the time. I still have a great deal of. Uh, a feeling for all of them. Larry, any, any good prosecutor um, has a strong feeling for the victims, especially in a, a homicide case, a case as brutal as this. And I'm sure you did too. So I, I'm going to ask you a broad question now that this particular case, and obviously it's one that people still talk about, you still hear about, how does this case, how did it affect you, your family, and, and your career? Well, uh, to start with, uh, I, was, I was working on this case for 14 months, give or take, and this is the only case I had. And it was a 24-hour a day, seven days a week job. Uh, I, I, I never rested. Uh, I felt like, uh, you know, time was of the essence. Uh, we needed to get this case put together, and once we had it together, uh, we need, needed to get it to trial. Uh, George, I'm sure you can appreciate this. I, I mean, we were able to get this case to trial in uh, in a year uh, from uh, indictment uh, to trial, which is which actually is, which is actually quick. Of. People don't realize, but that's quick. Yes, it, it's very very quick in a first degree murder case. Um, so, I mean, I, I I spent a lot of time on the road. I spent a lot of time talking to uh, witnesses. Uh, a lot of time. Uh, you know, lining up uh, expert witnesses and so forth. Uh, you know, we didn't really go into detail about the uh, forensic odontologist, but uh, we had, um, I actually hired four forensic odontologists in this case. The reason why is because um, bite mark evidence had never been uh, admitted in a court of law 
in the state of Florida before this case. There's absolutely no precedent for it. And back in those days, <clears throat> Florida was a, uh, a fry state. And what that means is that under United States versus fry, uh, in order to admit uh, novel or new scientific evidence into a court of law, you had to show that it was uh, the type of procedure that was generally accepted in the scientific community. And so what I did in order to beat that burden is I, I hired a forensic uh, odontologist from Miami. That was Dr. Suvron that we talked about earlier. Uh, I hired Dr. Lowell Levine uh, from uh, New York City, uh, their medical examiner's office. I hired uh, Dr. Homer Campbell from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I hired Dr. Norm Sperber uh, from San Diego, California. So you built your own scientific community. <laughs> yes, across the United States is exactly what I wanted to do. And uh, we actually had a hearing, a pretrial hearing, uh, that lasted three days in Tallahassee on uh, the uh, admissibility of bite mark evidence. And I called all, of, all four of those uh, forensic odontologists to testify about the procedures that were uh, used and, and why, uh, in this particular case, uh, you know, the... Uh, the comparison being made with Bundy's teeth was uh, uh, consistent with uh, generally accepted scientific principle. So what about, again, how did it affect your life, your family, or your career? Uh, well, I mean, it, <laughs> it was a tremendous impact. Uh, you know, like I said before, uh, I was spending 24 hours a day uh, working on this case. Uh, my, I was married at the time. My wife, uh, you know, she spent a lot of lonely nights, I'm sure, uh, with uh, me out of town and otherwise working. Uh, but uh, we were able to get through it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, the fact that I handled the case, uh, it, it did a lot in terms of my career in the sense that, uh, you know, people, everybody knows about the Bundy case. And so it's, a, it's an excellent way uh to be introduced to someone, uh, a new client or, you know, a friend or any other type of introduction uh, that can be made. Uh, you know, it, it um, immediately uh, everybody uh, recognizes the case and, and knows all about it and wants to know about it. And so it's a great uh, thing to have in my uh, uh, resume uh, to, uh, to have going forward. The other thing that it did uh, is, as a result of this case, I really uh, got into forensic evidence, uh, and I became a member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. Uh, I have done uh, presentations uh, at their annual meetings before on things related to other aspects of forensic evidence. I've uh, been asked to, uh, you know, get involved in uh, in cases, many cases, uh, simply because of my expertise in uh, forensic uh, sciences. Um, and uh, I was telling somebody uh, uh, yesterday about this, but uh, I, um, I, I'm actually handling a case right now that's in federal court um, down in Tampa uh, where forensic evidence is the whole key to the case. Even though it's a civil case, uh, it involves... Uh, scientific evidence of causation relating to whether or not uh, 
vegetable seeds could have caused uh, damage to uh, a farmer's crop and and things like that. I mean, it's uh, it, it's allowed me to to develop a, uh, a an expertise in uh, scientific evidence that uh, over the years I've, I've used uh, extensively. So overall, what is your feeling about all of the documentaries and Netflix movies and? reenactments that have been done as someone that was intimately involved in such a heinous crime. What is kind of your feeling about some people feel like it's glorifying them or it's giving Ted Bundy fame or it's, you know, harmful to the victims. What is your feeling about, you know, all the things that have come out about Ted Bundy since the time you tried the case? Well, I, my feeling is, uh, that it's a story that needs to be told. Uh, and that, um, People don't realize, even here in Tallahassee today, that um, you know you, you're never safe, uh, and you need to lock your doors. You need to be vigilant. You need to be concerned uh, about your safety. And if nothing else, I think these documentaries uh, uh, really emphasize that uh, because, I mean, Bundy's mo was such that. Uh, you know, he, he not only uh, picked up young girls uh, on the street uh, or at parks or at uh, schoolyards or whatever, but he actually entered uh, houses and homes and apartments and killed inside. Um, the I, I, Like I said, I just think it's a story that needs to be tell, told. And it also shows doesn't matter really what somebody looks like or sounds like or how smart or charming they are, you know, they you, you never really know a stranger. That's exactly right. I mean, the thing about Bundy is he can fit in anywhere. Um, I, I mean, he, he could be on this phone call or he could be sitting uh, in a room with us right mm -hmm. now. And he would carry and next, on. A, sitting next to us in law school. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he would talk like a lawyer. He would sound like a lawyer. Uh, he, he would have appropriate uh, mannerisms. He would be dressed appropriate, appropriately. You would never know in a million years that he was a serial killer. You know, Larry, I'm trying to remember, the, the Kyle house, was the door unlocked? Well, that's a good question. Nobody knows. Uh, what, uh, what we've always believed is that uh, Bundy entered... Uh, the uh, Kyle Omega house through a back door that was uh, that had a keypad that the girls could use to gain entry after hours. Uh, we know that uh, before uh, the murders, that door was malfunctioning by actually closing like it should all the time. But we also know Mr. Bundy, and there are several instances uh, out west uh, where Bundy gained entrance to people's homes or apartments, absolutely no sign of forced entry, uh, no indication of how he may have gotten into those locations. For that matter, we don't know how he got into Dunwoody. Uh, there's no sign of forced entry there. Um, so somebody could have just opened the door and invited him in? I would not expect Cheryl Thomas to have done that. Well, this was awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us, Larry. It was fun. We learned so much, and this is such a fascinating story. And I agree. I think they do need to be told, and I think that they actually 
uh, yeah, a lot of good can come from telling these stories and remembering even something as heinous as this. I couldn't agree more. Okay, Larry, thank you very much for taking the time. Certainly.